Welcome to Dig, a history podcast. One of the most pressing and distressing questions of our current age is mass incarceration. The conditions that prisoners live under, the books and possessions they are allowed to have, whether or not they are allowed to see their loved ones face to face, and even whether or not prisoners should be paid for their labor, that that loophole in the 13th Amendment uh, made well known by the documentary 13th, um, these questions have become part of renewed conversations about imprisonment. Underlying these really critical issues are some larger questions. What do we hope to accomplish when we send people to prison? Do we want to rehabilitate or punish? What would an ethical prison look like? It might be surprising to hear that these questions are not new. These are questions that reformers, politicians, bureaucrats, and wardens have been asking for centuries. Today, as part of our series on the law, we're expanding our focus a little to look at what is often the end result of the law, imprisonment. Specifically, we're going to talk about the Auburn Penitentiary, now known as the Auburn Correctional Facility in Auburn, New York. This prison changed the landscape of punishment in the United States, and its designs and its policies were exported around the world. I'm Sarah. And I'm Elizabeth. And we are your historians for this episode of Dig. So before we get into the meat of today's episode, the meat, uh, we just want to share one of these awesome reviews that we got from a listener on iTunes. This is from Layla McNeil, our very good friend from the Ladies Science Podcast, and she says, always in my playlist. I listened when this was the history buffs, and you ladies just keep getting better and better. I really enjoyed the episode on the murder of Bridget Cleary, especially how you teased out the intersecting histories of the case, like the history of wife abuse and British attitudes towards the Irish. I also appreciate how you often interject commentary about historical practice itself into the storytelling. Thanks for all the hard work you put into every episode. Thank you so much, Layla. We love hearing from our listeners, and if you um, send us an email or write us a review, you might just hear it read out loud on the podcast. So get in touch. And just remember, you can follow us on Twitter. You can catch us on Facebook. Um, If you're interested, we have a secret clubhouse uh, Facebook group where we get together with our fans and talk more about episodes and issues um, that we present in in the podcast. And that's Facebook Dig History Pod Squad. Yes. Yeah. And then, you know, Instagram, mm-hmm. Pinterest, uh, shoot us an email, shoot us snail mail, what have you. Just yeah. get in touch with us, follow us, and follow along. Yes. And our website is www.digpodcast.org. And, and there we, oh, find show notes, mm-hmm. transcripts, yeah. all sorts of further reading, things like that. So we look forward to hearing from you. Ready? In the early years of the 19th century, New York state officials had a problem. Their only state prison, named Newgate, most likely after the famous prison in London, was overcrowded. As the state's population grew, and as the New York City population grew, it became clear that the prison was just not going to be big enough to hold the criminals of the entire state. 
As the state government discussed plans to build a second prison, they looked at the rest of the state, which, newsflash, for those of you who do not live in New York State, is pretty damn big and encompasses much more than New York City. (laughs) Uh, They tried to determine where the best place for a new facility would be. Steered by prominent state assemblyman John H. Beach, they landed on a small but prosperous village called Auburn, which was Beach's hometown. The village was located in the Finger Lakes region, situated at the tip of Owasco Lake and just east of Cayuga Lake. The spot was perfect. It was close to the Owasco Inlet, which is a small river that could provide water power to the prison. Politically, the town was solidly Democratic-Republican, the party of Jefferson, and the party of the New York State Legislature. In part as a thank you for their political support, the state legislature rewarded the small town with the new state facility, and construction began in 1816. In order to really understand how Auburn revolutionized criminal justice in the United States, we need to give at least an overview of what prisons and the criminal justice system were like up to the 1810s. The American criminal justice system was, unsurprisingly, based on the English common law system. English law, uh, especially through the 1600s and 1700s, was pretty heavy-handed, and it relied heavily on capital punishment. I have a feeling that if Marissa was here, she would be, like, schooling us on 16th and, cent- 16th right. and 17th century English law. They've been doing that since the right. blah, blah, blah. Like, <laughs> right. right, whatever. This is we're America, doing our best. And we're talking about America. Right. right? <laughs> um, if you've heard our episode on sexuality and bestiality in Puritan New England, you know that capital punishment was a fairly standard sentence. Now, when we say capital punishment, we don't always mean the death penalty. Um, people could be whipped, locked up in stocks, branded. They could be mutilated, like having a, an ear cut off or something. Mm. Or they could be publicly shamed. If you've ever read the novel or watched the, you know, the, the movie, The mm-hmm. Scarlet Letter, uh, you know that one form of punishment was sometimes used uh, in colonial New England, public shaming in the form of literally labeling people with their crime. Um, in the case of the book, that was the Scarlet A for adulteress. Um, So this was a system that punished through pain and shame, motivated by the idea that people would not become repeat offenders because they would want to avoid that discomfort. So what are the same reasons some people give for, say, like spanking their kid, right? Mm -hmm, So if you avoid doling out that pain, your kid will never understand what it means to be corrected. Um, But if you uh, if you spank, right, right, they'll they'll learn to avoid trouble because they want to avoid the pain that comes with it. Right. I don't think that that's actually, like, what studies show, um, no, but no. that's what a lot of people believe, right? That's... Spare the rod and spoil the child. Right. And even though the American colonial system was inspired by the English system, it wasn't a carbon copy. American courts tended to be less punitive than English courts, and specifically, they were actually less quick to sentence offenders to death, which I think is a little surprising. Yeah. In England, people were regularly sentenced to death for relatively minor infractions like robbery and burglary. This was um, or this almost never happened in the colonies. They would still be punished and punished what we would consider severely, right? Yeah. Being uh, hurt or whipped or having an ear cut off, as you said, but not, you know, executed. Fewer people were executed than in England and more people who were sentenced to death were then given pardons. You know, does that have anything to do with the fact that America was still trying to populate itself? I mean, in oh, England, I, don't know. I mean, they had people to spare, yeah, whereas yeah. here we were still very rural and there just weren't a lot of people here. So That's a maybe, really like, good point. But that was why they didn't like prisons either, because they needed people's labor. Yeah. 
So they didn't want to hold them in prison forever and ever because they need deadly labor. Right. Yeah. Makes sense. In addition to physical punishment, there were, of course, jails. But it was more common in colonial America for people to receive a relatively quick physical correction and then have them be sent out on their way. Generally speaking, colonial Americans were more interested in getting people out and back to work than separating them from society, even temporarily. Jails were more typically used to house criminals who were awaiting their trial. When someone was held in jail for an extended period of time, and it was usually only for a few months, it was really just an extended form of those physical punishments and public shaming. Prisoners would be whipped publicly at different intervals, maybe, you know, every other day or something like that, you know, once a week. Um, or they would be paraded around the town once a week to be publicly shamed. Usually, prisoners weren't held in private cells, but kept in a communal area at night and during the day, they would be required to work for their keep. Another form of quote-unquote jail that did hold people for longer periods was workhouses. These were places where vagrants or debtors would live for extended periods of time working off their debts. Um, And a side note here. I found this hilarious law in New Hampshire that made it so that vagrants, beggars, and debtors would live in these workhouses. Like they'd be kind of like um, punished or mm-hmm. forced to, to pay off their debt to society by living in these workhouses. But also, not only vagrants, beggars, and debtors, but, quote, persons using any subtle craft, juggling, or unlawful games, or plays, or feigning themselves to have knowledge of physiognomy, uh, palmistry, or pretending they can tell destinies, fortunes, or discover where lost or stolen goods may be found, common pipers, fiddlers, <laughs> runaways, stubborn servants, or children, common drunkards, common night walkers, pilferers, wanton and lascivious persons, either in speech or behavior, railers or brawlers who neglect their callings, misspend what they earn, and do not provide for themselves or their families. Holy cow. <laughs> That's like covering any yeah. eventuality, right? You nasty, you going. Yeah. <laughs> oh my god, why can't I talk? <laughs> We're rounding up all those fiddlers and throwing oh, them into prison. Damn fiddlers. <laughs> it's interesting, like gypsies, essentially. Exactly. Right? Yeah, I thought about that too people who you know sort of would travel from town to town selling you know carnies yeah doing (laughs) enter because it talks about jugglers right people who are entertainers people who are i think violating that puritan work ethic um so i I just thought that that was telling but also really funny yeah just anybody right you look at us sideways workhouse Mm mm-hmm These early jails were more or less houses of correction. They weren't necessarily perceived as places where people were punished by separating them from society or by detaining them for long periods, but rather they were just places where people could receive those traditional quote-unquote corrections. Right. The spirit of the American Revolution changed the penal system significantly. After the Constitution was ratified, Americans had new rights codified by the federal government. The Bill of Rights gave Americans certain rights, like the right to free speech, the right against unreasonable search and seizure, the right to due process, that's the Fifth Amendment, the right to fair and fast trial by jury, freedom from excessive fines or cruel and unusual punishment. The desire to reform governments bled out into the general desire to reform society, which extended to crime and punishment. The legal profession and law enforcement started to become organized and professionalized, meaning that the system by which people who broke the law were punished were made more standard and efficient. 
Not by any means the large bureaucratic organizations that we have today, but still far more standardized than they had been in the colonial era. Mm -hmm. Punishments were also reformed. The number of crimes that were eligible for the death penalty were greatly reduced. Which is interesting considering that they were already reduced from what they had been in England. But if you recall from, uh, again, from the Puritan episode... You could be executed for kind of sexual deviancy or adultery. Those those um, punishments were on the books, even though they weren't used all that often. Right. And I think that's maybe what was happening more is just a lot of that kind of legalese was cleaned up. Exactly. Right? They weren't right. necessarily using a lot of those statutes already. Mm-hmm. Um, and another funny side note, Thomas Jefferson, when he was governor of Virginia, he proposed reducing the death penalty, but instead using different kinds of corporal punishment. Um, for example, he suggested castrating rapists right you know maybe there's something to that yeah Um, drilling a hole through the nose of women who committed sodomy what What? we both have holes drilled in our noses mm, we're sodomites (laughs) (laughs) i'm just curious what what the hell drilling a nose is it just because it's visible on the face i guess i guess i mean that's such a strange thing. I know. Thing. Like, okay. What does that have to do with sodomy? Yeah. Right. Especially because it makes me think, too, of, I mean, lots of Native American women had nose mm, piercings. and So I wonder if it has something to do with that. I, I just, I don't know. But it was specifically said drilling. That's really, you know, not piercing. Yeah, I'm like trying so. to wrap my head around that. Right. I wonder if the Native American, okay, this is like a completely side note, but... Oh, his name escapes me. It's um, when Jesus came, the corn mothers went away. Mm-hmm. Gutierrez. Yes, Gutierrez. Okay. Mm-hmm. Right. So he writes in that book. No, it's mostly about the Southwest. So it's mm-hmm. definitely different um, uh, culture, tri- tribal cultures than, than the Northeast um, that we're dealing with with Jefferson. Mm-hmm. But that one of, you know, the things that really freaked out spaniards or white people mm-hmm. was that native americans would have sex doggy style yes. essentially right that was that was really disturbing yes. to europeans i mean remember so i wonder if that has something to do with maybe sodomy. i don't know because anyway, remember said that sodomy so doesn't necessarily mean anal sex which is how we think of sodomy today right. but they considered um, anything not missionary doggy style yeah. was considered sodomy right. like th- lots of different kinds of quote-unquote deviant sex yeah. was considered sodomy so right. yeah that's a really interesting parallel okay, we need there. to look into that yeah, I, yeah. i'm like trying to wrap my head around this nose drilling anyway good lord <laughs> tangent um so long story short none of these punishments were used but yeah. you know tommy jeffs suggested them nonetheless yeah good old tommy jeffs these kinds of corporal punishments were falling out of favor anyway. In numerous states, physical punishments were being abolished, and instead, prisons were being built. Whipping, maiming, and otherwise hurting people somehow seemed like a holdover from monarchical authoritarianism. And I'm just going to pause here to say that whipping doesn't disappear. We'll talk about it later on, but it's not used um, as publicly as it had been. The death penalty was still used for certain crimes, particularly murder, but executions started to happen in private instead of in the public square, as they had been for centuries prior. While in the 18th century, public hangings were thought to be an important way for the public to express their sort of animal instincts, people in the 19th century were much more concerned about quelling those animal instincts, controlling emotion, and creating an outward appearance of propriety. There were serious exceptions to this. Enslaved people were regularly punished using physical means, and their whippings, beatings, and physical torture were all done in the sight of other enslaved people so that their pain could be used as a lesson. 
that's a, there's a really disturbing disconnect between the decline in using physical punishment for white people mm. and its continuation for black people. Yeah. Physical punishment, in a way, in the 19th century becomes racialized. Yeah. And this brings us to the penitentiary system. As corporal punishment fell out of favor, those houses of correction became the alternative. But instead of being simply places where people were physically corrected, they became in and of themselves the correction. Historian Lawrence Friedman explains that this change took place because it was an actual shift in how people perceived of criminal behavior. Whereas before the revolution, people were more likely to see crime as a result of a certain kind of person, 19th century Americans were more likely to see criminals as the product of their environment. People committed crimes because they lived in sinful cities surrounded by bad influences. If that was why people committed crimes, then all the whipping in the world wasn't going to help. Right. Instead, people needed to be physically separated from the bad environment and be taught how to behave properly. The first major penitentiaries were designed, oddly enough, by the Quakers. As you might already know, Quakers are a Christian denomination who are deeply pacifist and deeply concerned about reform and social justice, and they have been since forever. Uh, Another side note here, I would love to do an episode on famous Quakers because there are a lot of famous and super influential Quakers in American history. Yeah. And one of my favorite bits of trivia is that Richard Nixon, infamous Cold Warrior, extender of the Vietnam War, was a Quaker. He was, yeah. It's a really, really bad Quaker, in my opinion. <laughs> I'm not a Quaker, so I shouldn't pass judgment, but that's my, my take on it. Anyway, anyway. The Quakers were deeply concerned about ending capital punishment. You just gave Quakers a really bad name. We should we should caveat that. Did I? Oh no, I was say, I was saying that I'd love to do an episode on Quakers because yeah. there are there. But using him as your only example of a good Quaker is no, and he's not the good Quaker. He's no. a bad Quaker. Right, 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 right. Um, so yes, so Richard Nixon, bad Quaker. But there are so many. There are so many fascinating, um, for instance, Alice Paul was a Quaker. Right. That's what I was going to say. Like all of these really like big American names that you might not know. And incredibly Uh, influential in the women's. Yeah, exactly. In the women's suffrage movement. So um, I would love to do an episode on famous Quakers. I'm with you. Including uh, Nixon. Uh, Okay. Anyway, anyway. (laughs) So the Quakers were deeply concerned with ending capital punishment or at the very least restricting it as much as possible. And the perfect reform, they believed, was the penitentiary system, large prisons designed to hold prisoners for long periods of time. This would separate criminals from their corrupting environment and offer an extended period of time where they could be re-educated by the morally upright Quakers. The most well-known of their reformed prisons was the Eastern State Penitentiary, located near Philadelphia, which would open in 1829. The prison was designed like the spokes of a wheel, radiating out from a central area. Guards sitting in the center could see down these halls, kind of radiating out from the the guard post, but they couldn't see into individual cells. And while they may have been well-meaning, the Quaker prison reformers took the idea of separation and reform to the furthest possible extent. The Quaker prison system, also called the Pennsylvania system, relied on isolation. Prisons like Eastern State were the first in the world to use solitary confinement. 
Prisoners were marched into the prison hooded, in part so their identity would be kept secret so they could re-enter society without baggage, but also so that they wouldn't be able to see their surroundings as they entered. Once they were in prison, prisoners lived in complete isolation and silence, allowed only to keep a Bible as a personal possession, and they were required to work making shoes and other products. Silence was so important that guards wore slippers so they could move around the halls without prisoners being able to tell who they were. The work served more than one purpose. It gave prisoners a skill, it taught them the moralizing importance of hard work, but it also gave them something to do while living in complete isolation. The central goal of a Pennsylvania system prison was maintaining anonymity and keeping prisoners from interacting with each other. Um, and also just contemplation, right? Mm-hmm, Are you going to mm-hmm. go into that a little later? No. Yeah, I mean, because that was like the purpose behind the silence, right? Mm-hmm. That they were supposed to contemplate mm-hmm. their crimes, right? And contemplate like mm-hmm. what they could do to be a better person. Right. And, right, and that's the purpose for having the Bible in their cell. Right, 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 read, right, the, right. read the Bible. And that was it. That was right. all they were allowed. Read the Bible, be quiet, and think about becoming a better person. Right, right. In some prisons, even the exercise yards were individual. Um, In other prisons, exercise yards might be communal, but prisoners uh, wore masks to keep their anonymity and discourage interaction. The Pennsylvania system was adopted widely in both the United States and in England, but it wasn't the only system. That little upstate New York village and the prison it was awarded for its political loyalty became the originator of the second major prison system, which came to be known, unsurprisingly, as the Auburn system. Sometimes it was called the New York system, but it was usually called the Auburn system. The Auburn system was inspired by the Pennsylvania system, but with some serious modifications. Part of the Quaker roots of the Pennsylvania system was based on the Quaker idea of the inner light or the light or spirit of God within the individual. So the idea was that prisoners needed to spend time cultivating that inner light, sort of as Elizabeth said, in terms of contemplation, right? Mm -hmm. Some might say, and I think some Quakers today would say, that solitary confinement was a harsh or extreme way of focusing on that God within. They call it the God within. Um, But that was the inspiring premise, right? Mm -hmm. Give them time to spend kind of cultivating their inner selves. Auburn was not based on that same premise. The Finger Lakes region, like all of Western New York, was settled with New Englanders who were looking for open land that was unavailable in New England at the beginning of the 19th century. Mm -hmm. They were not Quakers. Instead, they were born and raised in a Puritan society. Um, The Puritan God was not the Quaker God. Mm -hmm. There was no inner light. The Puritan God was one of retribution, anger, and vengeance. He didn't love individual people, and there was no working towards salvation by improving yourself or society. Instead, individuals were either predestined for heaven or they were not. They couldn't do anything to change that fate. So while Auburn used the Pennsylvania system as a starting point, it did not share the same ideological framework. And I'll pause to say, this is not to say that there were no Quakers anywhere in central New York. Of course there were. I mean, one being Lucretia Mott, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And there are, famously, there are Quakers in the Orchard Park region um, south of Buffalo. Uh, But the the Puritan ideal was much, much stronger in New York than the Quaker one was. At first, there was nothing really different about Auburn, or for that matter, anything particularly noteworthy at all. It was more or less the same as the prisons in New York City, Newgate, and another one called Walnut Street. 
But things weren't going well there, and they weren't going well, all that well at Auburn either. Uh, Prisoners were used to construct the prison itself, but this led to a culture of cooperation between prisoners and guards, so that guards sold contraband goods like alcohol and tobacco to prisoners. Discipline was poor, and folks in the surrounding town were getting nervous. Because guards and inmates knew each other, guards sometimes refused to carry out punishments like whippings. Um, In one case, this meant that an Auburn citizen once came in to dole out those punishments, um, but when he entered the prison, he was met with a mob of prisoners who tarred and feathered him and literally rode him around town on a rail. Um, So clearly something had to change. Mm -hmm. In 1822, Governor of New York, DeWitt Clinton, suggested that maybe reformers had taken the desire to reform prisons too far and had forgotten about punishing criminals. He said, quote, the end of punishment is the prevention of crime by the infliction of pain and the operation of fear. Which aspect should our penitentiary present? The goal then became to bring back that fear and pain to the New York State prisons. For guidance, they turned to Pennsylvania. In 1819, construction started on a new cell block at Auburn. Side note, major setback in 1820 when prisoners somehow managed to burn it all down. Um, But eventually, this block helped to define the Auburn style. Cells were built along a corridor or a hallway. Um, As you'll recall, um, Eastern State on on the Pennsylvania system was built like the spokes of a wheel, right? Yeah these kind of uh, hallways. Auburn sort of is a takeoff of that, but it does it in its own sort of very interesting way. Um, So eventually this new block helped to define the Auburn style. Cells were built along a corridor or a hallway. The doors of those cells faced a wall with barred windows every few feet to provide light and ventilation. So cells are only on one side of the hall. Mm -hmm. This ensured that prisoners never saw each other and never saw anyone else, with the exception, perhaps, sometimes, of guards. Mm. This has been perhaps the most influential prison design in the history of prisons. This style, having cells set up in parallel lines, generally back-to-back, opening out toward either a central space where guards stand watch or to walls remains standard prison design even today. And I want to pause here in our discussion of Auburn specifically, just to talk for a second about prison architecture. Initially, the goal was to use pure solitary confinement inspired by the Pennsylvania system. This would solve the problem with discipline and the problem limiting prisoner interaction with each other and guards. Prisoners would be confined almost 100% of the time with short breaks for exercise. While inmates at Eastern State were kept in constant solitary confinement, their time was broken up with work. Prisoners were required to labor as part of their imprisonment and made shoes or other items that either went to be used by the prison or were sold to support the prison. This work was done independently, with prisoners working in their own cells. Cells at Eastern State were fairly large compared to Auburn cells, which were made smaller to make more room for a second row of cells behind them. So they were in a double line. Mm -hmm. Auburn was more focused on punishment. Even though they also believed in rehabilitation, their idea of rehabilitation was through punishment, not rehab. Mm -hmm. Uh, Remember, the Pennsylvania system used labor as a sort of rehabilitation. This didn't interest the folks in charge of Auburn. So prisoners were kept almost exclusively in their cells without anything to pass the time. They basically had nothing to do. Right. And um, as you can maybe guess, the results were not good. 
Prisoners could not endure this intense isolation and silence, deprived of any human contact without anything to occupy the time or give them a sense of time passing. Um, and kept in these incredibly small quarters, prisoners began to suffer serious mental health problems. Between 1821 and 1823, Auburn turned into a horror show. One prisoner tried to commit suicide by flinging himself off one of the hallways of the cells. Another prisoner tried to kill himself by beating his own head into the walls of his cell until he destroyed one of his eyes. Ugh. After five prisoners out of a population of only 80 Three successfully committed suicide and many, many others who were driven to severe mental illness and self-harm, it became clear that they could not use solitary confinement without work. Mm -hmm. According to one commentator, this system does not reform, it kills. This is where the Auburn system was born. That's that's so crazy. So they they took this idea of quiet and confinement, yet Mm -hmm. they didn't add that find your inner light exactly element to right. It, right it didn't have so just a torture purpose exactly and right. that was the idea was punishment 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 yeah. whereas the quakers were saying that the silence the the solid the isolation is about almost about meditation mm-hmm. right right and when you work it's almost meditative right. and, and even though they were they were in solitary they still had something that gave them a sense of time passing a sense mm-hmm. of accomplishment I, i'm not i don't mean to minimize the horror of, of solitary isolation, but it, it, it at least had that one aspect that made it um, less psychologically damaging. Well, yeah, and at the time, it was revolutionary, right? It wasn't, mm-hmm. we're just going to drag you out into the town square and, and, beat and you. whip you, right? right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it, it had a purpose, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So the results of the Auburn system were disastrous, uh, that they scrapped the idea of all day long solitary confinement altogether, uh, basically rejecting the Pennsylvania system entirely. Instead, they instituted a brand new system. Rather than having prisoners in their cells all day and all night, they instead brought all inmates out during the day to work in workshops, um, obviously kept on a very regimented schedule. They maintained their adherence to absolute silence and zero interaction, however. This seems fairly incongruous. How would you both have inmates work together in mass, but also get them to be silent and not interact with one another? Um, and the answer was intense discipline, mm-hmm. a rigid schedule, and the utter destruction of the prisoner's individuality. Prisoners were essentially interchangeable. It didn't matter how well they behaved. They never received better treatment or reward or privileges. No one was allowed reduced sentences or parole. These were considered a, a mockery to public justice, right? Mm-hmm. Right. The one drawback to not allowing extra privileges for those with good behavior was that there was also nothing to threaten or take away for bad behavior. So how did guards keep prisoners in line? Well, they relied on humiliation and a destruction of prisoners' sense of self-worth. Prisoners were treated without any acknowledgement of their individuality or their humanity whatsoever. When they entered the prison, they were given uniforms. Actually, um, that almost, at this point, stereotypical striped prison outfit that we sort of associate with cartoon bad guys, that came from Auburn, Hmm. that was invented at Auburn. While the cartoon version is supposed to be kind of funny, it was intended to be deeply shameful. These outfits looked ludicrous, um, as historian Walter David Lewis calls them grotesque. The uniforms also served to strip prisoners of their unique identities. When prisoners moved around the prison, whether they were going out to work or whatever, they moved in literal lockstep. This was another invention of Auburn. 
Prisoners walked in a column with one hand on the shoulder of the man in front of him and his head turned at an angle towards the guard. This way, the guards could tell if prisoners were whispering to one another by by seeing their lips move. At all other times, prisoners were supposed to walk with their eyes down, looking at the floor. Prisoners were not allowed to have visitors, nor were they allowed to write to their loved ones. The only human contact they might have, other than with guards or fellow inmates, was with average citizens who could pay a small ticket fee to come tour the prison as if it was a zoo. Now, this was actually fairly common practice with any kind of large institution in the 19th century. Asylums actually often made money off of a kind of macabre voyeurism that members of the public had, allowing them to come into the institution, tour the grounds, and look at mentally ill inmates as if they were animals. The same was also true of old soldiers' homes, these large sort of old folks' homes that were constructed in the aftermath of the Civil War, created to house aging and disabled Civil War veterans. They were often built to have park-like grounds, like asylums, so that it would attract people's interest in having an interesting Sunday outing, walking the grounds at an institution or asylum. But it had, I think, an even more insidious purpose at Auburn. This kind of voyeurism was meant to shame and humiliate prisoners. This was inviting members of the public into the prison to see how degraded and disgusting these men were, to emphasize their separation from society, their rejection from society, and also to ensure that they understood that they were not fit for citizenship or for freedom. It was part of the effort to degrade and demean these men so that they would internalize their punishment so they would, in a sense, self-punish. This might be a good place to pause for a second and think about everyone's favorite turtleneck-wearing, bad, bald-headed, philosophizing Frenchman, Michel Foucault. Yay! The idea of using shame and humiliation to manage prisoners' behavior was first described by English philosopher Jeremy Bentham in the 18th century. Bentham was interested in how to make prisons more efficient, and he proposed what he called the panopticon. This This would be a prison designed in the round. All the cells would be built circling a central guard tower. At no point could these prisoners have real privacy because the guards in the center would always be watching them. Now, this proposed prison was never really built, although there are a few prisons on this plan around the world now, but the idea of the panopticon of constant surveillance stuck around. It was picked up in the 1970s by French philosopher Michel Foucault, and what Foucault picks up on is the idea that in the panopticon, the end result, and indeed the goal, is to get the prisoners to discipline themselves. Mm -hmm. Since they're never sure when and if they're being watched, they begin to behave as if they are always being watched. And Foucault theorizes that there are many ways in which the panopticon works in our lives. When we are told over and over and over, that a behavior is socially reprehensible and are shamed about it, we internalize that and we self-police, trying to avoid that behavior. And a really funny but also really accurate version of this is the elf on the shelf. <laughs> um, turn this off right now if you have little kids in the room who love their elf. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, like my kids. kids right? Love their elf. But right, so like the elf is always watching. I'm sorry, the elf on the shelf is creepy as... <laughs> bleep okay (laughs) we do not have an elf in my house because that creeps the 
you know what I understand and I've actually seen some people get like really up in arms about how the elf on the shelf is teaching kids it it is the panopticon right well let me finish reading these copies so that people understand all right so the elf is always watching and he's always reporting back to Santa so little kids could take that to mean that they are being watched and they should learn to scrutinize their behavior at all times in order to avoid punishment now granted that's not necessarily that different than saying hey Santa's watching you you better straighten up and stop talking back little kid Mm -hmm, but the mm -hmm. fact that there's this little elf on the mantelpiece like yeah just always watching you yeah i'm sorry i watch too many 80s movies of like puppet master and stuff so like any kind of doll that is animated for me is like nope Mm -hmm. nope (laughs) i understand and i i have actually seen sort of intense like facebook fights break out where people the academics who are like you're teaching your children to internalize their discipline or whatever right and and like in our house like my kids just love the elf right like they just the, our elf is sweet and he does stupid things like hug their wonder woman action That's figures so and and i i'm i defend the elf because it's a it's a pleasant sweet thing to do for little kids do and i don't think do we should overthink breakfast? it no uh, that's a thing on Pinterest that oh. I've seen. Like, so when Elf shows up, you have like a huge, big no. like winter breakfast. I I get it, and I people do really cute things, but I don't overthink it. Yeah. He he moves around and he's adorable. <laughs> anyway, so I I have when I was um when I was working on my orals or on my exams, um, I was so intimidated by learning Foucault that I used to get physically Uh. sick thinking that my professors were going to grill me on particulars of Foucauldian theories in my oral exams. Was Rimbus one of your... Yes. Because that was my feeling as well. Exactly. I actually went to his office once and was like, can you just talk to me about Foucault for a while because I'm so I, I I was convinced myself that I didn't understand it yeah and then once he and I talked about it for a little while I was like oh okay I totally understand like it it, it wasn't as complicated and as intricate I mean reading it is <laughs> reading it is difficult reading it is like reading I don't know like but you know Foucault is not that intimidating if you're not a philosopher who's interested in all the minute details of it. If you just kind of can glean the the major theory out of it, then it actually makes sense. But they didn't grill me on Foucault, but they grilled me on other things like, like the progressive era. But um, and and I have to tell this other quick story. I know this is silly, but once um, actually when James and I were on our honeymoon, we were in a parking lot um, waiting for this person who was walking in front of our car was walking very very slowly and we couldn't pull out right yeah. and this person's walking past the car and james yells oh get out of our way jeremy bentham and it was really really funny and now whenever there's like a slow walker we're like oh why? it's jeremy bentham but why i have no idea Okay, because I don't understand the slow walking in the Jeremy Bentham. It was just the name that came out of his oh. mouth. <laughs> random. Yes. <laughs> it was very random. Not a good story. It was a Outtakes. good story to me. Okay. All right. So Foucault theorizes that the idea of the panopticon, constant surveillance, and internalizing the gaze of the authority exists in all sorts of different settings. It can exist between doctors and patients, little kids and their teachers, people of faith and their gods, or even their faith leaders. It can work with groups of people. For instance, in my research, I talk about how disabled people learn from dominant culture that their disabled bodies and minds were shameful. And so they learned to carry themselves in ways that minimized the obviousness of their difference. But anyway, back to prisons. Even though Auburn wasn't created with the architecture of the Panopticon, it still utilized some of the central components of it. 
Guards walked up and down the corridors of the prison in slippers or socks so they could move around without prisoners hearing them. So they learned, prisoners learned, that they could be being watched at any given moment. Stripping prisoners of their individual identities, having outsiders come in and leer at them, and humiliating them was all focused on getting prisoners to internalize their inferiority and their worthlessness. Once they were quote-unquote broken, they would be easier to keep quiet and calm in prison. Essentially, it would make the guards' jobs easier. If they did break a rule, however, they would be punished by whippings. There were safeguards in place thanks to an 1819 law about how and when whippings could take place. For instance, women convicts weren't to be whipped under this law. But in 1825, an Irish woman named Rachel Welch was severely whipped by a guard for causing trouble. She was pregnant at the time. She became incredibly ill, and although her baby was delivered alive, Rachel died shortly shortly thereafter. When the public learned about Rachel's death, a grand jury investigation was ordered, and eventually a jury determined that whipping women was absolutely against the law. But they upheld its legality for men, and in fact, although the law stated that men could only be whipped after a kind of trial or hearing, subsequent trials found that whippings could take place before any kind of hearing and could be given out by basically any guard of any standing within the prison. So you see a sort of stripping of prisoners' rights um, to any kind of hearing before receiving additional punishment. Right, right. The judge in one case stated that prisoners were not really ordinary men or citizens, but criminals that, that, quote, should be most deeply feel the awful degradation and misery to which their vicious courses had reduced them. Uh, And they must realize that the ordinary sympathies of our nature could not be extended to them consistently with the welfare of society and that they must not be indulged, end quote. So what this meant was that the guards had unfettered access to the bodies of the people that they guarded. Right. And I, I think that that quote is so telling, too, because he's setting criminals aside as something other. Right. They're not really people anymore. They're not really citizens. They don't have any rights that we should um, that we should acknowledge or recognize, and essentially the Bill of Rights does not, not apply, doesn't apply to, to them, them right? Anymore. Because they've um, they've they've proven that they are not um, they're not they've, real people, right? They've they're quote not quote proven, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. Yeah, um, and and again, as we're going to talk about at the end, I just I see a lot of this setting precedent for things that we're talking about right now, right? Mm-hmm. The whip hung over everything at Auburn, including the workshops. At Auburn, work wasn't necessarily about rehabilitation or honing skills to be used in freedom, but rather to keep prisoners busy and out of trouble and to keep the prison solvent. Prison labor was used to support the prison itself. Prisoners didn't make money off of their labor. Their work went to pay for operating costs. Sometimes prisoners made shoes and clothing that would be used for the prisoners themselves. Guards oversaw prison labor and used the lash as a form of terror to keep prisoners in line and working hard. This was indicative of the overall ethos of Auburn. The underlying motive was not rehabilitation, but punishment. In fact, Elam Linz, warden of Auburn in the early 1820s, wrote a report to the state legislature describing his vision of prison management. Earlier approaches to punishment were too focused on the idea that prisoners were victims of their environment, as as we we said earlier on, but Linz said that this had actually been misguided. He says, quote, 
There seems to have existed in this and in other countries an almost universal sentiment of partial regard to criminals of all sorts and to sturdy beggars, and generally in favor of all who get their living by inflicting distresses and imposing burdens in breach of the laws upon the best of mankind. These people, he wrote, deserved to be punished with hard labor, and that the prison could be run more cheaply if prisoners had to wear wooden shoes, sleep on corn husk mats on the floor, and eat tiny portions of cheap food. Even though Auburn and the Auburn system became a huge part of penology theory in the United States, it was pretty heavily criticized even at the time. Pennsylvania system supporters were horrified at the Auburn system, and some critics as well in Europe. An influential English reformer named William Roscoe was so disgusted by the system that he complained about it to the Marquis de Lafayette, who was in the midst of his triumphant tour of the United States, hoping that the old war hero could change some nines as he made his way around the young nation. Even some prison managers in New York, specifically at Newgate in New York City, were critical of the system. But at the same time, many others latched on to aspects of the Auburn system. And this, I think, is really fascinating. A New England reformer named Louis Dwight, the leader of the Prison Discipline Society, loved the Auburn system. He just became obsessed with it. He thought that it was just magnificent. He actually thought that it was so ingenious that he suggested that it be used in all sorts of different kinds of situations. He actually designed a plan for a school that would have individual rooms for children that would be built in such a way that they could be observed at all times from a central location. So the Panopticon, right? He wrote the unceasing vigilance of Auburn, quote, afforded a principle of very extensive application to families, schools, academics, colleges, factories, mechanics shops. He was trying to sell the very central idea of the panopticon, that it is used in all of these different settings in all these slightly different ways. It just sort of blows my mind. It blows my mind, but then it doesn't because um, that's kind of the the surveillance state we live in today. Absolutely. You go into a store, you know you're being recorded. Don't steal stuff. Yeah, exactly. It's it's almost... um, Which is Foucault. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, it, it really is. I mean, it doesn't just because we are not in a prison in the round doesn't mean that we aren't living in the panopticon. Right. right. We're constantly being surveilled, right. constantly being observed. Um, and so it was oddly prescient that he foresaw all foresaw these different this. ways right. that Auburn system could be used. Right. Absolutely. Dwight spent years advocating for the Auburn system. He visited legislators and emphasized how cheap the system could be compared to the Pennsylvania system. By 1833, new prisons in Maine, New Hampshire, Vermont, Massachusetts, Connecticut, D.C., Virginia, Tennessee, Louisiana, Missouri, Illinois, Ohio, and Ontario, Canada, uh, were all using this kind of system. Conversely, the Pennsylvania system was only being used in Pennsylvania, New Jersey, and Maryland. I think that's really, really interesting. Because today, um, just to interject again, I think one of the most famous 19th century prisons that still exist is Eastern State. Yeah. And a lot of people are familiar with it and they know of it. Um, and a lot, I, and I nobody think knows. I think they know about it because it's haunted, though. Well, that, <laughs> that might be true, but they, people people know that Eastern State was a prison. They know it existed. Yeah. It's also because Eastern State is now a very, very good museum. But no one no one has heard of Auburn, and even the town of Auburn is is quite right. small. Um, but yet, it's it's so much more actually mm-hmm. ingrained into our exactly. system than right. than Eastern State was. Yeah, yeah. 
Ultimately, the Auburn system, or at least aspects of the Auburn system, became the dominant prison system. I think we can all recognize major elements of current corrections facilities in the descriptions of Auburn. Maybe not the sneaking around in socks or the constant whippings, but certainly the use of constant surveillance, individual cells with communal workspaces and rec spaces used during the day, with the threat of punishment overhanging every interaction. Again, Maybe not whipping, but certainly losing privileges, losing the right to have visitors, Mm -hmm. the right to exercise, or certain foods. Mm -hmm. And the system wasn't the only thing about Auburn that stayed with us. In 1890, Auburn became the first prison to use the electric chair when they executed a man named William Kemmler, who had killed his wife with an axe. And in another episode that seems disturbingly similar to current events, Kemmler didn't die Mm. easy. The chair didn't work right away. Kemmler was electrocuted for 17 seconds, and then doctors declared him dead. But he wasn't dead. So they had to strap him in again and give him another round. Finally, after four minutes, the man had died. Absolutely horrific. So not adhering to that cruel and unusual unusual punishment. Right. Right. So today, not so many people have heard of Auburn, right, as Sarah just mentioned, or its famous prison, but they certainly live in a world molded from it. Right. So I think for me, one of the most striking things about researching and putting together this episode was that right now we're having so many debates about prisons. And, and maybe this is just, you know, maybe this is is not actually the whole world or all of society. Maybe it's just, you know, people who think about these things. But there Many are so, people. yeah, there are so, it's sort of in the public consciousness right now, prisons and particularly solitary confinement. Mm-hmm. So this, um, this brings to mind the story of Khalif Browder, who was a, a very young man. Um, he was only 16 years old, who was arrested and put in Rikers Island um, after he was accused of stealing a backpack and the backpack and all of its contents were worth about 700 bucks. Right. Mm -hmm. So, so nothing really high stakes here. Um, Put into into Rikers Island for three years. He was forced to do lots of time in solitary confinement. This is before he was ever tried. Not to mention he's 16. He was 16 years old in an adult um, correctional facility. And so he he was eventually released. But after um, he was out for a couple of months, he committed suicide. Um, He had really severe um, mental trauma from being in this environment and from specifically from the use of solitary confinement. Um, And what I Fine. What year? What year is this? Just recently. It was 2000. He was arrested in 2010. How was he put um, into Rikers as a 16-year-old? That's the question, Holy right? Cow. So um, what this brings to mind with me or what, what kind of struck me as I was working on this was, you know, in, 18, in the 1820s, what was it, 1821 to 1823, um, Auburn had this experiment with solitary confinement and what happened, right? Prisoners were desperate to kill themselves desperate to kill themselves they were so um disturbed by these practices that they had to stop using solitary confinement that's how severe it was um and here it is 200 years later and we haven't learned those lessons no and we're still having this conversation about is solitary confinement good right Right. like we'd answered that question in the 1820s yeah um, and that's not to say, I mean, Auburn obviously continued to use solitary, but they didn't even use it really in the way that we use it now, right. which is, in, you know, they used it in a limited sense, right? Mm-hmm. They only used it at night. 
And I'll, I'll just I'll just bring up one other thing too. You mentioned um, this woman who was whipped and, mm-hmm. and eventually died. So yeah. I think uh, we don't have two hours. So I think maybe in another episode we should pick up um, how uh prisons became separated by sex because yeah. it is important to point out that in these early years women would be thrown into uh prisons with men mm-hmm. and obviously raped and yeah. I mean, she was uh, pregnant yeah um and I, I think that the that the um what i read about rachel welch right was mm-hmm. what i read about rachel welch was that it was probably um one of the guards had, oh, absolutely. Had, had raped her so there's or a, that there's she had a... had some sort of sexual relationship with. And I think that women and men were kept on different blocks. Not always. But not always. No, not right. always. Um, there's a great book, Her Sister's Keeper, mm-hmm. right, by Friedman, um, that, that really discusses all this. So this is something we can talk about in, that's in a like a future episode is how this was one of those 19th century reform movements um, that women were advocating for, right? Like prison reform, right. right? And to get women out of these prisons and into women's only prisons and be yeah. guarded by women. And that was kind of a whole nother like court reform system. Like yeah. not even just women guards, but women judges, you know, this kind of thing to like, yeah. deal with quote unquote women's issues. Yeah. And and again, something that we're, we're having conversations about right now. I mean, with the, um, what's the show? Orange is the New Black, right? The, the people becoming kind of, more conscious of women's prisons and and why the reasons why women end up in prison and all of this to me there are so many things that are kind of interconnected here Mm -hmm. sexual violence sexual assault mental health and the reasons why people end up in prisons in the first place um and then what happens to them when they're in prisons Right. right because i think even now we continue to have this struggle over what is the goal of prisons what's the goal of imprisonment is it rehabilitation i think increasingly right now the goal is not rehabilitation no. the goal is punishment right the, the goal is to well, right separate. now it's just yeah separate and warehousing mm-hmm. essentially yeah yeah and yeah i mean we again this could be a two-hour episode we yeah. talk about mass incarceration drug enforcement mandatory minimums right um the people who are in prison right now who you know were driving the car that their boyfriend was in and he was doing a drug deal and they're right. in prison for 25 years right. I mean, it's it's really um it's really horrifying um i'd like to uh, another one other thing i'll say about an episode in the future is i'd really like to do a uh, an episode based on the relatively new book by heather thompson about the attica riots mm-hmm. i think gets into a lot of these these same questions and would be an interesting kind of follow-up to this episode because it's all questions that they were asking in the 1820s they're asking again in the 1970s mm-hmm. in the wake of attica yeah so and also another local local. i event. was just thinking that yeah local history mm-hmm. for us cool so i do want to say one last thing um and that's that i had this interesting conversation with with my friend um gail radford who is a professor at UB and and someone that I work with on a daily basis and, and we all have worked with as graduate students. Um, her husband, Steve Hart, is involved in a an organization called the Campaign for Alternatives to Isolated Confinement. And they recently built a replica solitary cell and had different kind of legislators and, and politicians and, and people mm. come and actually kind of tour this cell so they mm-hmm. could get an idea for how confining this experience actually is. Um, and they're hard at work trying to get a 
bill passed in New York State, which is called the Humane Alternatives to Long-Term Solitary Confinement Act, or the HALT Solitary Confinement Act. Mm-hmm. Um, so if this is something that uh, resonates with you, you can get, you can find more information about that at nycaic.org. Okay. All right. Well, um, I hope that you enjoyed this episode. It was really enlightening for me to put together, and it actually, I think, inspired us to do a few more episodes yeah. on these really important issues. So yeah, absolutely. So we'll, um, and, and, and listen to it, you know, if you, they, all of our episodes stand alone, but listen to it in conjunction. Right. Um, we've actually already released one on the 14th Amendment. Yeah. So this this is the first one. You can go and listen to that one and kind of, I I think maybe some of this will come into even more, uh, context for you. Right. And then of course, uh, the few other episodes, we're going to do one on the Nuremberg trials, Mm -hmm. which brings in the 14th Amendment. So all of this stuff is kind of related, uh, in some way or another. Um, yeah. And we, we just do, we want to, um, remind you that all of our episodes do stand alone. Don't feel like you need to listen to them in order, but they are put into these kind of four episode chunks where they're sort of more or less kind of, um, in relation to one another, yeah, kind of having spit, a conversation with each other. We pick a theme, mm-hmm. right? So this 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 series is law, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. And you don't need to listen to the Fourteenth Amendment one first, and then listen to this one, for instance. Yeah. But I think that, um, at least for us, when we put them together, I think we learn a lot from from all four of them, kind of in conjunction mm-hmm. with one another. Absolutely. So we hope you would too. Yeah. <laughs> all and right. And on that, thanks so much for listening. Yeah, I'm Sarah. I'm Elizabeth. Bye. Bye. And some reasons, what reasons? <laughs> I'm like drooling. <laughs> problems, oh. podcast problems. I really enjoyed the episode on the murder of Bird Birgit. <laughs> Came a huge part of penology theory. Penology. Of penology. Penology. Peen peen. Because they lived in sinridden. People committed crimes because they lived in sin-ridden cities. (laughs) One more time. People committed crimes because they lived in sid... (laughs) They lived in sid... (laughs) What's wrong with us right now? (laughs) Our bodies are not participating. Noteworthy. Noteworthy. As you'll remember... Eastern State was on that spoke of a... Right. <laughs> Stop being around. All of the cells would be built cir- circu... Right. <laughs> Circling. <laughs> Note to self, write episodes that have small words in them for Elizabeth. Oh, <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm simple. Circular. C- circling. <laughs>